had to remember how to wear this. Had a bit of a head cold this week, and it's lingering just a little bit, so I want to be mindful and protect you all. I look at the covenant through history that God made with his children, beginning with Adam and Eve. If you were to summarize what we call the Adamic covenant or the covenant of creation, basically the covenant was, I created you to live, so trust me and live. Walk and talk with me each day and live. That was it. That was the covenant made with our mother and our father. And of course, the covenant that he made with them was kept or was it broken? It was broken. It was broken. But the maker of the covenant shows up and calls out to them, where are you? The covenant with Noah was trust me and live. Something's coming, I need you to help me. It sounds crazy, it sounds way, way out of line, nothing like it has ever, ever happened before, so just trust me and live. And of course, part of the covenant was kept, most of it was kept, but in the end it was broken. But, Noah, but God shows up again, and an ancestor of Noah, Abram and his wife Sarai, Trust me, he says, trust me. Go where I go to, to tell you to go and live. And when I show up every now and then, walk and talk with me and live. And of course, that covenant was broken. I always said the first thing that Abraham did with the covenant that God made with him was break it. Very first thing he ever did with it was break it. But God shows up again to his son Isaac, and then to his grandson Jacob, and then to a distant relative named Moses. And all of them, every one of them up to a certain degree kept some, but broke some, but he keeps showing up until finally he gets to this final son of the covenant named David. And of course David has a great record of keeping the covenant, doesn't he? But it was trust me and be delivered, David. Be the shepherd that I called you to be to my children as king. But as with Abraham, after he broke it, as with Abraham, a root from your father will come, a mediator of a new covenant. So I look at this and I, and, and, and I say, the one thing that the children of Abraham at least know out of all of this, all of this history, the one thing that they should know that they should carry away from this is that the God of their fathers continues to show up again. Always shows up again when they fall short. And he continues to show up for his kids. And the next one's kids. And the next one's kids, as he promised. You and your seed, Abraham, shall remain and be blessed forever. And the continuing covenant always seems to be made new. This is what was pointed out to us last week, that this Christ as our high priest, for this reason he is the mediator of a what? Of a new covenant, so that those who are called by, so the, those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, because a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions under the first. 
All of the breakings of the covenant, the first covenant, in all of the chapters of it, all the way up to Jesus, this death makes sure that a new covenant is offered. So as the breaking of the covenant from Abraham and Isaac goes to Jacob, the breaking of the covenant of them comes to us. And our debt and our inheritance is assured by the mediator of the new covenant because of his death. We're reminded that the system that was even, uh, the system that for dealing with the falling short uh, is, is made new by this. We pointed out, unlike last, we pointed out last week that unlike the old sin offerings had to be offered, the problem with the old one is that the sin offerings have to be offered how often? Every day. Every day, every year, it has to be done. Purification offerings, they have to be offered every, every time, every year, whenever they're called for. This is the problem with the old. And by the way, he pointed out last week that the purification offerings could purify, but they couldn't purify the what? Couldn't purify the conscience. They can't make the believer new. But in Christ, this new mediator of this new covenant, it's possible to be forgiven and cleansed, to be forgiven and then pronounced holy, to be justified and to be sanctified. Because he says, how much more? If these other offerings could do it, but maybe not clear the, the conscience, but they could do something, but how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to worship the living God? So to believe that, to believe that you've not only been forgiven, but you've also been cleansed. If, he, if, we, if we confess our sins, he who is faithful and true will forgive and cleanse. And for how long? Once and for all. How much faith does it take to believe that? How many of you were reminded of that this week? How many of you remembered that that time when you fell short, that time when, when uh, the sin that you committed, you committed so suddenly that it slapped you in the face this week. How many were reminded that that sin had been forgiven and not only had been forgiven, you are cleansed of it. For how long? Forever. How'd you like to be reckoned, how'd you like to believe that you could have his righteousness reckoned to you for how long? Forever. So Hebrews moves on to challenge us whether we will live by this or not. That's what chapter 10 is about. Are you going to believe what I've been telling you, the author of Hebrews says, about this high priest? I met with a, a friend last week that I hadn't seen in a while, and uh, we got around to, uh, to what we were preaching and teaching, and he said, what are you preaching on? I said, man, I'm preaching on Hebrews, which means I'm preaching about nothing but Jesus, because Hebrews won't let me teach anything else. What a shame, I have to talk about Jesus again today. Man, in Adventist church, talking about Jesus, Sabbath after Sabbath after Sabbath. I'm lucky I still have church members coming. 
So Hebrews in chapter 10 will move us to wonder, can we live this way? Can, what does it look like to be assured of this every day and live in it in the midst of our daily struggle? Because our daily struggle still contains these sinful natures that remind us immediately every day that we wake up that it's still there and the old man is still knocking. So it begins, how do we do this? How do we live in this assurance? Chapter one, uh, chapter, verse one of chapter 10, for the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things, can never by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year make perfect those who draw near. He's reiterating what he pointed out that the reason why they can't be made perfect is that it has to be done every day and year by year. Sin offerings had to be made uh, individually every day. The sanctuary needed to be cleansed of those sins every year. So ritually, the sanctuary could be cleansed, but what did it do for the believer? Did it cleanse the believer? No. It couldn't do it because it was limited. Otherwise, they would, have ceased not, they would have ceased to be offered. If it could do it, then it would have ceased because the worshipers, having been cleansed, would no longer have had the consciousness of sins. If the first covenant could do it, it would be done. And by the way, the, the offerings would have stopped. The cleansings would have stopped because it would have been done for us. Author of Hebrews saying the reason we know that the old covenant couldn't cleanse is because the old covenant continued to go. Until when? Until the mediator of the new came. But in those sacrifices, there's a reminder of sins year by year. It's interesting. See, uh, my problem with my sinful nature is that I wake up each day and there it is. I don't need much of a reminder. How many here need to be reminded that they have a sinful nature? And how long does it take after you've been awake? Usually it's my very first encounter with somebody else and ask her if she's reminded every day of my sinful nature, of my selfishness, usually most of us, as soon as we come in contact with someone else, we're probably reminded that we don't love by nature, that actually we kind of dislike by nature, don't we? How many here have a commute more than 20 minutes? There you go. I've told you before, my commute has wrecked many, many good devotions for me. Wrecked within the first five minutes. What I've wished upon other people in a car, oh, the blood of bulls and goats does not cleanse that. But what's interesting here, though, is that the author of Hebrews is saying, well, if Either you don't, you're ignoring your sinful nature or you're so arrogant that you don't believe that you still have one. Well, even the system should remind you. The very system that they used, the very system that they picked instead of a face-to-face relationship with God, it's the system that reminds us that we're sinful. Why? Because the system has to be cleansed year by year. Isn't that interesting? 
Author of Hebrews is talking to people who are so self-righteous, they don't believe they have a problem. So he said, well, the very system that you're putting your confidence in should tell you that you have a problem. Why? Because that high priest has to clean that thing every year because of you. And also the reminder, because it's impossible for what? It's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. It's impossible. It's impossible for animals to do it. But when the, when the old one was up, what else did they have? Nothing. So they just went about it every day. They had to do it every day. Every year, every day, every year, until something else happens. And then he reminds us what that something else is. Therefore, when he comes into the world, he says what? Sacrifice and offering you've not desired, but a body you have prepared for me in whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you have taken no pleasure. Again, the author of Hebrews is not yelling at you. Okay, the capital letters means he's quoting Psalm 40, actually. Psalm 40 comes along, Psalm of David, Psalm, uh, son of David, by the way, and he says this, sacrifice and offering you've not desired, but what? A body that you've prepared for me. That's what you desire. A body that has been prepared. Then I said, behold, I've come in the scroll of the book. It is written of me to do your will. One day there's a son of David that's gonna show up that says, all I wanna do is do your will, Lord. And it's the one that was written about. Which, by the way, now I know that David is no longer talking about him. Because it wasn't David that this was written about. It was about a son of David that was going to come along. And stand up in the midst of this humanity and say, I've come to do your will. And after saying above sacrifices and offerings and whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you've not desired, nor have you taken pleasure in them, which are offered according to what? They're offered according to the law. They were, they were given under the law. He then says, behold, I've come to do your will. He takes away the first in order to establish the second. So the author of Hebrews does what a Hebrew does. He does a midrash on Psalm 40, saying the blood sacrifices can't do what he desires. So Jesus, the son of David, comes to do his will by eliminating the good to present the perfect. By this we will have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ. How much? Once and for all. And how do we know that this sacrifice was perfect? How do we know that it completely sanctifies us, makes us holy, cleanses us completely from our sins, cleanses our consciousness from our sin? Every day, by the way. For how long, by the way? Forever. How do we know that it's forever? It's because he did it once, and he did it once and for all. How do we know that? He says, because in the first, every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices, sacrifices which can never what? Can never take away sins. 
But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. One of the proofs that we have that he did this is that he's not here. Where is he? He's seated at the right hand of God. Do you ever wonder why? Because he's not needed here for that right now. And by the way, he, he reminded us last week that when he comes again, he's not coming to deal with sin. He's coming to take us home. Sin's been dealt with. One of the reasons I know is that, that his sacrifice once and for all took care of sin is that when he went back to the kingdom, when he went back and sat down at the right hand of the Father, he's still there. If there was something else that needed to be done, he would have come back to do it. But he's done it. And what he's waiting for is that time onward until his enemies, enemies be made a footstool. So one for all time. Why? Because he sits in God's throne. He has all of God's authority. He is God himself. And he paid everything that needed to be paid. He defeated every enemy that needed to be defeated. And when he did, he sat on that throne. And now all he's waiting is for his enemies to be shown as conquered. He's not waiting for the enemies to be conquered. Have they been conquered? It is finished. The rest of the time after he uttered those words is for his enemies to be shown as conquered. It's for the rest of this to play out. It's what I believe that means there. But whatever it means, I'll tell you what it doesn't mean. He's not waiting for us to become perfect. He's not waiting for us to be perfect. He's not waiting for his image to be reproduced in the church. You know why? Because that offering, he perfected us all who have been sanctified. It's not what he's waiting for. Sometimes we've taught the world that what he's waiting for is for his church to get their act together. But how could we be getting our, how could he be waiting for that when his offering has what? Perfected, for how long? For all time, those who are what? Who are cleansed. How do you know that you're cleansed? How do you know? You believe, don't you? Do you believe? Congratulations. You're cleansed. And if you're cleansed, you've also been made perfect. For how long? For all time. Now, when he pronounced this, when this word was pronounced, Jesus had already been back in the kingdom for a couple of decades. When he pronounced it, did he know that not all of us were there? Did he know that we all still had sinful natures? Did he know that we all wake up and struggle and that we're going to fall short every day of the glory of God? Did he know it when he said this? So what is he asking us to do then? He's asking us in spite of all that we know to just have a little faith 
in what he knows. That's quite a statement. Who'll back this up? Who's gonna help me? You said amen. Would you testify to this? Can you testify to this? Would you be able to tell somebody tomorrow that this is really what it means to be a believer? To be not only forgiven, but to be cleansed? To be perfect in the eyes of God? Can you testify to that? Well, we don't have to, because he said, I'll give you another testimony. I'll give you a testimony that you can count on. See, I'm not sure you can count on mine. Even the author of Hebrews said, I'm not sure you can count on my testimony, but here's who you can count on. The Holy Spirit testifies to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them, after those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts, in their minds, and write them. And he then says, and their sins and their lawless deeds, I will remember no more. Isn't that the definition of being cleansed? Now where there is forgiveness of these things, there's no longer any offering for sin. See, he keeps coming back to that, doesn't he? Priest doesn't have to go back in tomorrow. He doesn't have to go back in next year. So how about that testimony? The Holy Spirit testifies. Who's the Holy Spirit? It's his presence here, isn't it? Jesus the Son may be seated at the right hand of the Father right now, but is he there or is he here? Yes. His Holy Spirit is his constant presence, which means that is his constant testimony right there. Every day, every moment, that's what he's testifying. I testify to this, he says. You are cleansed, forgiven, perfect. Your deeds, your sins, I remember no more. And if you believe that there are forgiveness, that you have forgiveness like this, then don't worry. The reason there is no other offering for sin is that it's because no other offering is needed. So as I said, the good news is barely believable, isn't it? It's barely believable. In fact, it's so barely believable, maybe we better put the brakes on right here. Don't, shouldn't we? We should put the brakes on. We should hold up a little bit. Hold on, pastor. Is it really quite that good? What about that last part? What about that last part that there's no longer any offering for sin? Um, I've, I, I seem to remember something. I seem to remember in my childhood, I seem to recall something that used to be taught. We need to pump the brakes. Because as Adventists, here's where we've pumped the brakes, haven't we? Right here, right at this point, right here. Ease up now. See, we need to avoid something. We need to avoid a heresy or an extreme that I know comes after this. We pump the brakes because we want to avoid 
The idea that if we, if we teach and preach that people are already righteously perfect because of their faith for all time, then can't they just continue to sin and continue to claim that? We can't do that then. How can we turn the gospel into a heresy? We look at that and we label it as we pump the brakes and we call it what? The doctrine of once saved, what? Always saved. See, and that never hit our ears right as Seventh-day Adventists. You know why it never hit our ears right? I believe, I believe that it shouldn't hit our ears right because we know and we understand and we value everyone's free will above all else. God values everyone's free will. So yes, it's possible. It is possible to be able to live in that faith, to be able to believe that you're perfected and refuse it. It's possible to change our minds. It's possible to change our ways. It can happen anytime that we're breathing. However, it's also possible to continue. See, but even after that profound statement of being perfected once and for all and being cleansed, the letter does seem to warn us to pump the brakes. Because in the middle of the letter, it jumps to this. For if we go on sinning willfully, receiving the knowledge of the truth, there, are no, there no longer remains what? A sacrifice for sins. If we continue, it seems to be furthering what verse 18 says. No longer a sacrifice for persistent, willful sin. It goes on to say that if we continue to do this, judgment is waiting, right? A terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of fire which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who set aside the law of Moses without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the spirit of grace? For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay, the Lord will judge his people. It's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. By the way, every word of that is true. If that's what we want, if we will not continue in the cleansing and the perfection of Jesus, if we will not continue in that, this is what is waiting for us. See, because if we refuse that, if we say, you know what, I, 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 I'm, I'm just going to persist in not believing that I can be cleansed for past, present, and future sins, that I can be purified and perfect from past, present, or future sins, when I prove it wrong every day, I'm simply not going to believe that anymore. And if I don't, guess what's waiting for me? What has always been waiting for us? On the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So it seems to draw a line. We draw the line. It's that word persistent. Persistent sin seems to have no sacrifice for it. See, but I wake up each and every day falling short, and I know it's waiting for me again. So guess what? Just to tell me that, okay, okay, the only thing that's not covered is persistent sin. 
And I wake up every day seeing I still have persistent sin. In other words, that teaching has done nothing for me. Absolutely nothing. Well, as I pointed out, back in verse 18, there is no longer an offering because it was done once and for all. He's not talking about the sin. He's talking about the offering for it. Why did it have to be done once and for all? Because sin is persistent in your life, in my life, in the church's life. We don't have to be reminded about it. We wake up and there it is. So the reason there's no longer any offering for sin is because it's already been offered. See, when you get to the end of this, it's a terrifying thing to fall in the hands of a living God. It's a terrifying thing to be on his end of vengeance. And the author of Hebrews, if what he was saying was, you can't be forgiven for persistent sin, you can't be cleansed for persistent sin, why at the end of the warning then does he go on to say this? He says, but remember, and I'm going to stop right there. I'm going to stop right there. Because but is a beautiful word in this case. But remember the what? Remember the former days. After being what? After being enlightened. Do you remember that, he said? Do you remember the day that you believed you could be cleansed and forgiven and made perfect for all time? Do you remember that? He says, why not continue to remember that? Because when you did remember it, you were able to endure a great conflict of suffering. Remember, you endured, you kept going, you kept moving forward. Why not now? Groups of people are saying, put the brakes on there. You can't be preaching that. Hold on. Author of Hebrews is saying, why? Why are you putting the brakes on now? So I skipped over verse 19 and the verses that followed about the church itself, about the gathering itself, so I could come back to it here. Because we've been perfected and cleansed, as it said in verse 18, because it has been offered for all time, he says, therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is, his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil kind conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is what? Is faithful. Have confidence. Not in your seeming persistent in sinning and your inability to deal with it, but confidence in his blood that allows you to enter whatever state that you're in. It's his blood, his confidence, his assurance that cleanses me of my persistent sin. It's a new and living way. 
to wake up every day confronted with falling short, but to have the great high priest say, keep moving forward. I knew before the foundation of the world you were gonna feel like this right now. I knew before the foundation of the world the sin that you committed and fell short yesterday. Keep moving forward. Don't pump the brakes now. After Abraham broke God's covenant by not trusting him, God called him to perform a common covenant uh, inauguration ceremony that was done by the kings of the day in ancient Mesopotamia. Remember, he was told to take some animals and to sacrifice them and actually cut them in half, remember? We're told that there was an ox and uh, from, from turtle dove all the way to ox and everything in between. And they were to slice the animals in half and lay the halves end to end like this, end to end. And the, and the treaty was, was that the king that you were making the treaty with, he, he would say, he, he was holding you to the covenant. And what was supposed to happen, what you were supposed to do then was after the covenant was made and, and, and the king said, all right, now it's time to show everybody what will happen if you break the covenant. And me, as the one making the covenant with the king, I was to walk in between the pieces with my hands out and pronounce, if I break the covenant, may this be done to me. You remember that Abraham performs this in the morning. And by sundown, birds are starting to form and he's keeping the birds away. But as the sun goes down and it gets dark, all Moses says is, and there was a great horror that overtook Abram. Because you know what Abram realized as the sun was going down? He'd already broken the covenant. And all that was left was for God to do to him what had just been done to the animals. And as soon as Abram realized that, all of a sudden, a flaming torch and a smoking pot comes down from heaven and goes in between the pieces. And the voice from heaven says, Abram, I'm keeping the covenant. I made this covenant. I'm keeping the covenant. Yeah, you have reason to be terrified, but not anymore. And of course, when Abram wakes from that, from that epiphany when he shows up afterwards, he now has to continue to live out the covenant. And by the way, from that moment forward, was he able to live out the covenant perfectly? No, guess what's still on the horizon? Hagar's still on the horizon. Did God know that? When he decided he was going to say, I'll pay the price for you breaking the covenant? Did God know that that's where Abram would be? In just a few years, of course he did. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without what? Without wavering, for he who promised is what? Is faithful. Yes, we're condemned by the testimony of two witnesses. On one side, the accuser says, guess what, Adventist? Your sin is persistent. You've crossed the line now. You've crossed the line into a sin that can't be forgiven and can't be cleansed. It's persistent. On the other side, our high priest says, I've taken care of that once and for all. 
Will you move forward? Only one voice is needed. Only one more voice is needed in order to condemn the sinner. Just one more. Me? I'm tempted to say my record is against me. My behavior is against me. The accuser is right. My sin is persistent. I can't seem to shake it. And the high priest calls out, yes, Greg, but do you believe what I've told you? Do you believe what I've done for you? Where have you placed your faith? Remember, come on, press on, move forward. And we're not just left on our own. See, that can happen every day in our prayer closet, and we can feel absolutely alone especially when the accuser's voice gets loud, especially when my own voice begins to echo his and my guilt and my shame make it even louder and louder. Well, guess what's supposed to happen? This is how we're supposed to consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. This is the role that the gathering has to place. This is the role that the church has to make. We have to begin to become this community. We have to begin to become louder than the voices of condemnation. When we got a sinner who's struggling with that voice and it's too loud, he's supposed to be able to come to us. We're supposed to be able to tell him, remind him, your high priest took care of this once and for all. Come on, keep coming, keep going. Will we hold fast without wavering? It's one thing for us to be able to believe it, but can you do it for somebody else? We're not supposed to be on our own. Not forsaking our own assembling, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. A couple weeks ago, Kevin knew he was playing and he asked me, he said, so what are you gonna be preaching on? I said, Hebrews 10. That's all I knew at the time. By the way, that's kind of all I knew pretty late this week. But as soon as I said Hebrews 10, I remembered verse 25. I said, that's the verse. That's the verse that pastors get to use to make people feel guilty for not coming to church. Not forsaking their own gathering, as is the habit of some. And in a way, He's right. But what are we supposed to be coming together for? It's to stimulate one another to love. It's to encourage one another. Why? To believe what the high priest has done. That's why we're here. And by the way, just because I get up here and I preach it every Sabbath, even if you're getting tired of it. It's not just my job, it's yours. Have you encouraged somebody today? Because I guarantee you there's somebody looking right back at me right now who's struggling with the very thing that I'm telling them. They need to be stimulated. They need to be encouraged. And not just with my words, they need it with your touch. That's what we're here for. We are a living, breathing body of Christ. 
And if we're his body, we offer his forgiveness, his cleansing, and his longing to belong. So that's what we get at. It's who belongs and who doesn't. How persistent to sin before we can tell somebody that they no longer belong. Then after the dire warnings of what it would be like without our high priest, again, he, he continues. But remember the former days when after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings, partly by being made a public spectacle, spectacle through reproaches and tribulations, and partly by becoming sharers of those who were so treated. They faced persecution. And the only way that they were able to do it was to believe what they'd been told about their high priest, and then to have a body that could help, that would hold us up, that would protect, that we could have strength from. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners, you're still able to reach out. Even people who are wavering in their faith, they were still able to reach out to prisoners. By the way, people that can't pay you back for what you've done to reach out to the marginalized, the most marginalized. And you accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. Therefore, don't throw away your what? Your confidence, which, is a, which has a great reward, for you have, you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. For yet in a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by what? By faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But you know what? We're not of those who shrink back. Amen. We don't have to face destruction because we will not go back on our faith. But of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. We need to guard against heresy, yes but not at the expense of shrinking back on faith in his grace. If we do, it is our destruction. If we shrink back on our faith, it is our destruction. Arlene read for us today the beautiful discourse in Romans about the law and grace and sin and grace. In verse 20, it says, but the law came in with the result that the trespass multiplied, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. How, and, and I don't have time to do it, but how in the world can the law increase sin? Well, it's because it increases the knowledge of sin. The New Living Translation says God's law was given so that people could see how sinful they were. I like that, because that's exactly what the law does, right? It's exactly what the law does. It, it, us, compared to the law, it, it just shows us, continues to show us how short we fall and how condemned we really are. The law was given on Sinai. It makes God's will quite explicit. But after sin, there needed to be a new ground zero because sin, by the way, preceded the law. Which, by the way, which means if sin precedes the law, then sin has to be something more than transgression of the law, amen? 
Again, sin is a nature. It's a sinfulness. It's a sinful nature. The law comes because after sin entered, there's no moral ground zero anymore. And since Israel doesn't want to walk with God face to face, he was forced to write it down. By the way, once it hit the tablet, that's all it can do is condemn. But law came in with the result that the trespass trespass multiplied. Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. I love the words. The word increased is a Greek word that actually means superabound. Where sin superabounded. Sin had been around before the law, but after the law, it went nuts. It went crazy. Paul gives the example. He says, you know what? If the law hadn't come along, I wouldn't have known what it was meant to covet. But by the way, after the law came along, I found out I was a coveting dude. That's all I did. He's saying that after the law came, that's all he saw himself doing. So sin superabounds because of the law. But the end of verse 20 says, but grace abounded all the more. If sin superabounds, he pulls out another Greek word that actually means to hyperabound, to be over and above the superabounding. It's two separate words, hooperabounding and, and pleonazo, which is superabounding. Where sin superabounded, grace hyperabounded even more. Sin superabounds, it increases, it causes to increase, it grows greater, grace goes over and above superabounding. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. How is the trespass not like the free gift? Death is exacting. Punishment and condemnation is exacting. It's an eye for an eye. Punishments come with crimes. Records are kept. Every birth, every death. But we need to remember that life is greater than death. Grace is greater than condemnation. Death dies. Sin dies. They end. Life, ah, not so much. Behold, I saw, I saw the one on the throne, and he looked and he said, Behold, I make all things new. So not forsaking our assembling by the way, the word in Greek for that assembling is synagogos. It's the Greek word for synagogue. That's that gathering, that synagogue, that gathering. That the reason we get together is for the good news to be able to preach its limits. And to know that it has no limits, the gospel does. And we don't shrink back from that. We don't shrink back that although sin superabounds, we don't shrink back to preach that grace hyperabounds. We have somebody who we think their sin is too much, too persistent, that it superabounds, and that maybe, just maybe, because of that, they don't belong here. We don't shrink back. 
we bound forward to him and say, guess what? Your sin may superabound, but his grace hyperabounds. You found your way home. The perfect high priest gave us perfect righteousness. We gather here to encourage each other of that. By the way, in a couple of chapters, we're gonna come across a verse that says, by the way, guys, see to it that no one misses the grace of God. It's our very mission, isn't it? And it'll get hard, and it'll get harder. We'll have other Christians telling us that we've gone too far. We'll have other Christians telling us that we're uh, once saved, always saved, that this is too easy, so forth and so on. We'll We'll have our own church members telling us that. But those of us who have just a little faith in his hyper-abounding grace, we're not gonna shrink back. You and me, we'll do this together. Our mission today is to make sure that no one goes home without it. So I said the words, and I also have a little cold, okay? So as long as you don't have a cold, touch somebody with your grace before you let them go home. Be filled, be full of peace, and be assured, don't shrink back. He is our perfect high priest. Thanks for holding on again. Happy Sabbath, everybody.